You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Jamie Dimitriou, creator and star of Staff Let's Flats, aka my, my favorite thing I've watched in like a really, really long time. Though it just premiered in the U.S. on HBO Max, the show has aired two celebrated seasons, or series as they call it in the U.K., on Channel 4. In the U.K., this summer, Stathlet's Flats won the BAFTA for Best Scripted Comedy, beating Dairy Girls, Catastrophe, and, if you can believe it, the second season of Fleabag. Some of you might actually recognize Jamie for his role as Bus Roded on Fleabag. You, you know, if you watched Fleabag. If you're not familiar with the show or living in England, I'm sure the title is confusing. It was confusing to me, so I will explain it. So, Stath is the name of the character Jamie plays, a sweet English-Greek-Cypriot idiot just trying to be cool based on the limited TV and movies he's watched. And Let's Flats means Lisa's Apartments. That's what Stath does. He, he works at a letting agency started by his father. The scene we are going to play is so, so, so funny to me, but but I think it will help to have some context. So it comes from Season 2, Episode 5, and the basic setup is Stath has a yearly tradition of getting chips, or french fries, with his younger sister, Sophie. Sophie is played by Jamie's real-life older sister, Natasha, who is an incredibly funny comedian in her own right, who you might know from What We Do in the Shadows. On the show, as in real life, the siblings have an incredibly loving, supportive relationship. Uh, it's also notable, Sophie is, is maybe the only character dumber than Staff. So, Chips is the plan until Sophie thinks to invite her new boyfriend, Chem, played by David Mumeni, who besides also being pretty stupid, suggests that instead of getting Chips, they get pizza. Sophie's bread idea is that they should make it a double date, and that Staff should invite Katya. Okay, so... Katya is Sophie's best friend, roommate, and music-slash-dance partner. She's played by Ellie White, who is Natasha's real-life comedy partner. The whole series up until this point, Stath has been mean to Katya, so when he asks her out, she says no. So he's surprised to see she's there when he shows up. And there's more. See, this is a problem because Stath, needing a date, invited his best friend from the office, Al. Al is just as sweet as the rest of the characters, though slightly less stupid and quite a bit more awkward. Al and Sophie have a bit of a will-they-won't-they thing, or as Sophie tells Stath, when she learns that Al is coming, it's mixed emotions. Al is played by Al Roberts, a comedian Jamie has worked with in the past. Okay, I think that's everything, but to keep track, Chem is the first to talk, then Stath responds, Katya then compliments Stath's outfit, they go back and forth, 
Then the waiter comes. When it comes to order pizza, Sophie's the first to order, and then Al. I think you'll get it. Mostly, I'm so excited for you. I love this show. I, I want more shows to be like this, silly and nice, but clearly so well thought out. Um, it, it, it was a joy to talk to Jamie about it. So here is Jamie Dimitrio. Thanks for letting me come because I know maybe everyone thinks I'm a bit dangerous or whatever. And it's a family night, but I only got so much respect for you and your family. You got good words, innit? I like the way that you uh, have respected me tonight. Dash, by the way, I like your new kit. You look like Desert Prince. Is it respect to interact? Hey, I like your. You got a version of a different version of hair. Small coming up. Hey guys, have you had a chance to look at the food menu? Yes, thank you, mate. <clears throat> Oh, you're the waiter? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. And my compliments for the chef. From me too. Steph, you're the best one here, so why don't you order for the whole table? Uh, yeah, good. Good choice. Um, okay, yeah, so we are all going to have the pizza. Which pizza? Mmm. I can't say that for sure. Oh, um, can I please eat the cheese and tomato one, uh, Tom Tom Cheesy? And, and the same for me, please, thanks. Um, and Sophie, you're, you're welcome to a bit of mine if you want to share. Why you order the same one, Tom Tom but Cheesy? Yeah, this, this, this. Can, I, can I the, the burger, the, the pizza, the Tom Cheesy? Do you have a pizza that's half half different toppings? Yes. I don't want that. I want all the same beef. Do you have cheddar cheese? We use mozzarella. I want God's cheese, beef, pizza, all the same. And maybe you could do one slice, no toppings, but garlic bread slice? Uh, I'm not sure about that. Just get me some chips. She knows our food, isn't it? <laughs> Can we get pizza and chips? <laughs> <laughs> For me, it seems like this one has sausages and cheeses on it. Uh, can I have that one, or is that one not very nice at all? It's, it's nice. Wow. <laughs> I think I know which one I'm having. It sounds delicious from what he said. So, uh, that one. Any drinks apart from top water? No. He was very lovely. Oh, yeah, I loved him. Yeah, was... very professional. The waiter. Ugh, too quiet. Shy. I want to get TV remote and just press louder, louder, louder. <laughs> louder. <laughs> Crazy. Louder. <laughs> That's a new image, isn't it? Mad. That's very funny. Very, very funny. Well Thank done. you. So I am here with Jamie Dimitriou. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me here in my ha in my own apartment. <laughs> yes, and me me and my own. Uh, though different, <laughs> very different times, right? It's nighttime there. Sure. Oh, right. Yeah. Are you? How long are you from bed? <laughs> Many hours. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't talk like that. I don't know what kind of English stereotype I'm trying to uphold. <laughs> um, so I, w I want to talk about the scene. So um, to, to sort of get right at it. So so the ordering pizza scene, how did it fit into what you're trying to do story wise and character wise? And just like, what did you think about ordering pizza would be funny for these characters to do? Um, okay. Uh, so... I suppose I'm I'm often kind of set piece led 
um, mm -hmm. with with the show, as in I, I try and think what like a funny bracket would be. I mean, I always talk to my producer about trying to find a kind of moment that would be the card in people's head for that episode. Mm. It's like if you paused it at any moment in the episode, you'd know which one it was just from that freeze frame yeah. kind of thing. So the idea of them all being sat around eating pizza felt very different. I mean, it seems so inane, but <laughs> yes. it felt so full of colour to me because <laughs> I know it's, it's mad, isn't it? it? It's born out of actually, we didn't really go, me and my sister who's in the show, Natasha, um, we didn't ever really go out for dinner so much when we were little. It was like a real treat uh, if we ever did. And we were sort of not au fait with the rules and the kind of terms and conditions of, mm. uh, <laughs> of, of having something cooked, not in our kitchen. I don't think I had takeout until I was like 16 or something. And, uh, and that's because your dad was a chef? Oh, no, my mum would generally cook. Oh, cool. we, in fact, to be honest, me and my sister cooked for ourselves from the age. I, I was like 11 when I started cooking for myself. But but do I think it's just a, a, a money thing, maybe, or just sure. like it just wasn't a tradition in our house. So we were the ones who had to break it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. But I remember just so many instances of um, just like dumb attempts to eat food not in our, not in our house. <laughs> Like me and my sister went to the US for the first time when we were kids with my mum. She had a kind of meeting uh, mm -hmm. thing out there. Um, and uh, she gave us like, <laughs> like six or seven dollars or something to go and get breakfast <laughs> together <laughs> for the two of us. Mm -hmm. um, not not to be stingy. She just was like, didn't know. Yeah. And uh, we we went out and I think I ordered like one sausage <laughs> and my sister had uh my sorry I'm just cracking up at my own story uh, <laughs> my sister I just haven't thought about this for a while my sister would have got I don't know something cereal or something and at the end she was like now you don't just pay for the food you have to give extra monies <laughs> to the people who work here okay so I'm going to be in charge of that so we can't spend all the money we need to save it to do that tip uh, yeah. And she walked into the kitchen to give them the tip. <laughs> <laughs> I remember her, but it's it's still. To, this is when I was like ten, and to this yeah. day, she'll know what I'm saying if I go. And this is for you because that's what she said to the chef in the kitchen. <laughs> Direct to the source. She just didn't want the restaurant to be stealing from the uh, from the people who work there. Sure, no, it's very nice. Yeah, that's amazing. But stuff like that, yeah. I mean, the the the, the actual like exact sort of reference point for it was I went to a friend's house. I'll tell a much shorter story here. I went to a friend's yeah. house when I was like seventeen, and none of my friends could like cook or anything. Um, and one of them made a soup like enough soup for everyone and they were mm -hmm. all kind of like bad boys kind of thing yeah used to just like fucking around and and like getting arrested occasionally and i remember them really taking themselves seriously for this evening because this soup was being cooked and they kept before the <laughs> before the soup came to the table they kept saying my compliments to the chef <laughs> got it my my compliments to the chef um uh, because they it's like the whole of staff is just about a bunch of people saying things they've heard people say in movies and trying mm -hmm. to pass them off in in their own mouths and it's like they'd heard people say my compliments to the chef and it sort of allowed them to feel like grown-ups and not fuck-ups for a second and i thought there was something quite sweet about that end of references <laughs> how does the show written so for those who aren't familiar here in the states essentially all sitcoms even small ones will have 
a writer's room of some sort of at least a few people to larger teams and they break the stories together. They punch up the stories together. I know there are someone you worked with for the first series, as you would say, or first season, as we would say. But generally, how do you write a show? How do you write a scene like this? Is it is it all you? Well, so the last three episodes of season one and season two was all me. And uh, I co-wrote the first three with Robert Popper of series one, uh, who's a brilliant British writer um, who wrote uh, a show called Look Around You, which is quite well loved here. He's brilliant. And uh, but yeah, generally I write on my own. My producer, Seb Barwell, um, uh, along with Robert Popper, who became script editor of the show. So we'll sort Mm -hmm. of like read a couple of drafts of it kind of thing are my kind of sounding walls and they'll uh, sort of bring me back on the road if I'm veering off and, and you know, help out. But when I write, I'm, I'm completely on my yeah. own, yeah. I heard you once say that, that you write phonetically. What does that mean for something like this? Like, when you for the line which is like, is it respect to interact? Are you, like, writing it out incorrectly? Yeah, it's written like that, yeah. Interact with a K, yeah. Can you hear just sort of how all these characters speak in your head? Like, is it a very, you know, like, are you, I, I feel like there's some visual writing comedy writers and they're sort of more auditory. Like, is it something where you can really, really hear sort of everyone speaking? I, I think so. Yeah. I think the actors themselves bring so much to it and will more often than not elevate what I have. Mm-hmm. But there is a kind of, the joke more often than not lies in the way that something's said versus what is said. Um, uh, yeah, I think that there are some that literally don't work if they're not said in a particular way because the joke is is exclusively in how it's said, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the reason it took a thousand years to get over the line mm-hmm. because I've had to sort of learn, you know, I think there's that this is fine. I think I've, I've I just had to learn over the years that every stage of script development, be it showing it to the commissioners, you know, showing it to my producer, doing a table read, uh, what for rehearsals, every script kind of has to be different and to suit a different purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a script that is absolutely perfect on the page, it's it's sort of been built for that medium kind of mm-hmm. thing. And you do kind of have to do that because the people who are financing it and the people who need to understand it need to understand it kind of thing. Uh, and, and I'm sort of more than happy to go through that process now because it does help you to understand your script better. If you write mm-hmm. a script that's like, I, I tend to kind of build on the sort of auditory, like uh, the, the, the stuff that, that is about tone and delivery tends to mm-hmm. come in in the last pass, yeah. So much of the, the scene in the show is really about the characters. You're having five characters that every line they're saying is very much in their line. So I want to talk to you about character very specifically and go through each one and i want to start with stath but sort of i want to ask in general so we're about the same age and i feel like in the states growing up there are a lot of big characters especially in movies there's like the mike myers movies and the will ferrell movies etc you know but like the last five to ten years here it's sort of dried up outside of sketch like you just don't see big characters in the way that you used to has a similar thing happened for y'all do you feel like has has comedy become much more realism based and is this show a response to that is this show just you know what about it has made you so drawn to doing character comedy it's funny isn't it because yeah. i think that um yeah the, the, that's definitely the case here but i've got to say you know wh- when i started writing it that wasn't so much the case we was we still had like peep show and there were still quite a few kind of character like heavy character things coming out um 
And then while I was, you know, I was in development for about six, seven years. And, yeah. you know, by the time I got to the sort of fourth, I was like, I don't know if I want to write like a big sitcom <laughs> anymore. Definitely not about a letting agency. What the yeah. hell am I doing? I don't have any, I don't have a stance on this world. Mm. Like I don't have, I, I really don't have any interest in any of this. And, you know, I'd just done Fleabag and that had exploded and I was, you know, and I thought that was brilliant. And, and you know, I, I think that it's important to say that I absolutely love, you know, the, I think that a big part of the turn that comedy's taken is great. You know, there are so many great shows that are, you know, focusing on naturalism, etc. I do think there's a progressiveness to it. I just don't, I think my issue is the complete absence of the other. Mm. It's like, I mean, I was definitely worried about making it because I, towards the end, because I was like, do I even stand by this? Do I, I yeah. do I want to be part of this, you know, how the diversion that's going on? Um, and now that it's out and it's done, I re- I've sort of, you know, over time, obviously it hasn't occurred to me like today, but over <laughs> yeah. time it's, um, you know, I am proud. I'm really proud to have a show that's sort of a, a, a kind of hard comedy. And, yeah. uh, and also what I will say is I, I've really learned as well, I hope, to attempt to prove that a hard comedy doesn't mean n- nothing of substance. Yeah. Like, I think that there's a tendency to see a comedy drama as um, a show that keeps its comedy and its drama in separate lanes. Like, you have mm-hmm. your funny bit and then you have your dramatic bit. But I think that some of the moments that I like the most in staff are where you take something that should be dripping with pathos and 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 just like completely undermine it but that doesn't mean the pathos is gone it just means that there's two things happening at the same time the thing that to what you're saying this thing that i i noticed even sort of reading some interviews with you is a thing that i'll I'll notice will happen often with comedy here which is people or critics who like the show want to find a way to argue it like it's important you know like they're to be like oh is the show about they'll ask you if the show's about gentrification or brexit and Mm -hmm. and i feel like and you'll push back a bit i guess my question is what do you feel is important about just like here's a thing that is silly and and nice and and not use it pejorative like it being a thing that is a hard comedy in of itself is an important thing totally yeah i mean i think there's i think there's a million answers to that question God, I mean, my, my, my director always says that I'm like, <laughs> I'm deathly serious about silliness. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I, I think I was about to just start talking about comedy budgets in the UK, <laughs> just like destroying any likeness with admin. But I, I do think that like that, you know, money has been sucked out of anything that feels mm. like uh, it, it's representing kind of like funniness alone uh, in, in the UK. Um, and I do think that there's something quite important about trying to stop that from being the case because yeah. it just it just means that this like lovely tradition that we have that you know that is just it's just it's great you know I, I mean when, you know importance wise when I think about like the kind of foundation of my joy growing up ninety percent mm. of it is like Father Ted. Sasha Baron Cohen, The Office, you know, every era kind of like, you know, it's sort of, it's color palette was defined by the comedy that I was into. And I, and I think it's important to, to, I don't know, I just think as a personal mission, it feels important, you know? 
So I want to talk more about creating staff. So the the earliest, at least I know of you doing the character, is a uh, on Channel 4's comedy Blaps, um, oh, which whoa. was in two thousand, which was in two thousand thirteen. But had you been mm. doing the character? I know you've done live character stuff. Had you been doing a version of it before, or was it something you created for a video performance? Sort of where was that initial origin? Um, uh, I think the origin was uh just the voice i think yeah. I, I i i was doing live stuff for like uh before i got the commission i'd been doing live stuff for like four or five years mm-hmm. um and you know in that i'd sort of tried to to just sort of work out what voices i can do that have whole kind of lives behind them and aren't just mm-hmm. like sketch characters kind of thing and growing up meeting loads of greek people and sort of living in a in a in a community full of loads of sort of mixed euro english accents um and being around uh, a lot of thick people including myself thick yeah, meaning yeah. stupid i don't yeah, yeah. Uh, um uh i i kind of this one felt like something that i could uh, i'd sort of know what the character would say in any given scenario and i do it live as but i i do it in various kind of under various banners, like a guy who owns a kebab shop, uh, you know, a schoolboy, um, you know, a guy on the phone. And then uh, I got offered these three online shorts um, off the back of writing some uh, 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 sketches on spec for a, mm-hmm. for a sketch show on Channel 4. And uh, yeah, we just felt like, we felt like uh, a lettings agency was a great backdrop for this kind of five minute short because it basically was just this whole short was effectively going to be me showing someone around a property and being let to kind of like improvise and blah 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 and uh we just felt like it was a really funny job um you you mentioned the voice and so between that the first short you did and the six or seven years until the first season the voice changes it sort of gets much lower it's closer to your voice, at least in, in tone, mm. in so much that the voice led so much of um, who the character ended up being. How did the change in voice correspond to sort of how the character evolved by the time you got to the the first series? Uh, yeah, that's that's a thinker. Um, <laughs> um, I, I actually, do you know what the funny thing is? I, I think that the development really took place in the process of shooting series one. I mean, the voice got lower gradually over the years because when I'd be kind of de- trying to demonstrate lines to my exec or, or my producer in the room, I just found that it would, like, they'd get irritable because it was so nasal and like up yeah. here. I was like, that can sustain a short, like a five minute short, but six episodes of, of, of 23 minutes, absolutely no way. But I think the greatest, the, the biggest development um, you know, for me as a writer, as well as staff as a character, was I think I had a, 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 a stupid, rebellious streak in me that was like, why do characters have to be likable? Mm-hmm. Get over it. And it's not, and I learned that it's not about likable. It's just about interesting. And people mm-hmm. who are loathsome aren't interesting if they have no redeeming qualities at all for the audience to hook onto. And I just did not understand that until season one came out. And I noticed that the the general reaction to the first couple of episodes was okay in, you know, Mm -hmm. but 
uh, that you know Stath is reprehensible in it. He pushes a guy. He like isn't nice. He isn't like immediately nice to his sister. But I I, I took for granted that the audience just knew everything that had happened in the five years of development. Like yeah. we built this like backstory for him where he was like bullied at school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then and then like I remember people saying to me in season one, episode three, when you get a sense of that in like actually spoken in the story, people are like I had no idea. So he's like a sweet guy. I'm like yeah. If, isn't this like the sweet guy show? I thought that's what this was. And everyone's like, I remember my therapist saying to me, she was like, why? She, I mean, I don't know why she was watching my show and talking to me about it. But sure. I remember her being like, what do you have against yourself that you've made this character so obnoxious? And I was like, no, he's, no. I thought he was nice. <laughs> um, no, it's definitely a thing that I noticed from when I recommend the show that it by episode three and definitely by episode four, you it you were like, oh, I get it. I root for this kid. I, I said kid because like you, he does, especially as the voice, the mix of sort of the voice and how he misspeaks is very sort of like like a little kid. And I think right, yeah. And then when you see him interact with his sister, you're just like, oh, we're watching these little kids who happen to be grown ups there's something really sweet about that right exactly yeah um that's the that's the aim yeah the the other influence that i heard you mention was how reality television stars talk um Mm, yeah can can you talk a little bit about how that comes into play uh yeah uh i think it's um you know carol uh the character carol is the, the sort of best example of that i think it's just like well, I'm I'm specifically talking about the early noughties, late nineties reality TV boom, when um, no one had a sense of of being caught out. Like everyone just thought they were getting away with everything. Mm-hmm. Like like you know like talking in a way that they've heard people talk on TV because that's the only reference point they had, and not th- and not thinking people will see through it. I mean. Ricky Gervais, I've heard him talk about how he's like the, the the original series of pop stars, which is what led to Pop Idol, which is what led to X Factor. Mm. I mean, David Brent is in that show. It's like yeah. it, it's like literally that there, there are there's verbatim lines from The Office in that show, and it was really all about. And you know, obviously, The Office was a like a reality sh- TV show um, in in its own way, mm-hmm. um, and. I think it was about people, you know, being able to think that they could be funny and that people would just find them funny because they're them and that why would anyone not find me funny kind of thing. In fact, a big sort of mission statement of mine with the show was, you know, with the sitcoms I'd watched growing up that I loved, I had noticed, you know, you notice a pattern of everyone saying very, very witty stuff all the time and no one's acknowledging it. Uh, and people just carry on with their day or at the very, I mean, when Chandler says something hilarious in friends at the very most, he'll get like someone like roll their eyes at him. <laughs> yeah. That's a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, and you're like, that he came up with that off the top of his head. <laughs> that's if that happened in my friendship group, people would talk about it for a year. <laughs> it would be like, do you remember when we were sat around, there was no, like there, there was no jump off point. He just hit the jugular and said, maybe the funniest smartest thing I've ever heard and no one laughs and I was like 
okay, so what happens if you do have people laughing? And then I'm like, well, that's just like smug. And I was like, well, what if no one's funny, <laughs> but everyone's laughing? <laughs> and, and it's like, that feels more truthful to me. I think that every group of friends thinks they're the funniest group of friends in the world. They secretly want to be like, am I right in thinking that tonight was electric? Yeah. <laughs> and we were all on the on the form of our lives. And it was like, if you if, if anyone was to listen in, it'd be like, it's, it wasn't great, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in this scene, it's like Katya is like, she pretends it's a remote. And she's like, louder, louder, louder. Right, yeah. Staff yeah. is cracking up. He couldn't believe someone said something so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's like, I think he's shocked by creativity. Like he's he's illuminated by anyone who can say something that isn't directly in front of him. Like she like con her conjuring like an image of a remote. It's like, but there isn't even a remote control here. How are you doing this? I don't know. It's also like, it's nice seeing people light up. Whenever I talk to people who, who do characters, I, I find that they are sometimes sort of extensions of people's truest selves or the characters, a sort of manifestation of something in their own personalities they, they wish they had. They're like, oh, they're, they're me if I was more confident, me if I was more comfortable being angry, if I was more put together or sort of less worried about what people think. Is, is Stath either is he your truest self? Is he uh, who you'd want to be? And <laughs> Yeah, it's my, yeah, I'm aspiring every day to hit that mark. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think that he is me calling out all my flaws so that no one can say them about me. <laughs> I'm not like uh, physically skilled. <laughs> like I'm not like, I don't have a great sense of balance. I'm like, I'm not clumsy, but I was never like good at sports or anything like that. Or like a good running style. And I think that deep down, it's kind of an attempt to be like, by the way, I know, and I'm leaning into it. Like yeah. I'm actually, I, I'm making a virtue of these terrible traits of mine kind of thing. Yeah. Um, in general, how how well do you know Stath at this point? Like, like if you were asked a random question, do you feel like you instinctually like would know what he would say? Like how deep is the backstory? Like if I was like, oh, what's his favorite movie? Even though that's not in the show, is that something you just sort of would know? Um, yeah, I actually do know the answer to that question, uh, uh, and it's Sweeney Todd. Um, and I think it's because it's sort of like one of 20 films he's seen. I think he probably sees himself as someone who's obsessed with films, but he's accidentally just watched the same ones over and over again. Like just ones that I, you know, he's, he comes from one of those households where there's like four movies on the shelf mm -hmm. and they're like his movies. And it's like, those are the ones that I watch because I have, because I have, because I have them. But I, I, I don't know. I think I'm probably, I think not due to some like deep kind of like twisted, like internal relationship with him. But I, I think as a result of working on it almost exclusively <laughs> yeah. for eight or nine years, I just have probably had almost every conversation I could have about him. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. To connect it back to the scene, um, why was his pizza order the way that it was? Oh, good question. Someone once said to me that the easiest, funnest scenes to write if you're ever in a hole are scenes where there's a kind of joint goal. And it usually entails ordering food, actually. Mm -hmm. Because just I, it can tell you so much about each person. So I think in, in the instance of Stath with this, I think he sees this evening as a kind of grand 
sort mm. of almost Tudor feast mixed with kind of like cool New York vibes, like things he's sort of seen on like a T-shirt in a kind of rip-off store kind of thing, like, keep doing it, man. Um, like, we eat pizza 24-7, baby, yeah. kind of thing. And I think that he's sort of really just luxuriating in the moment. And uh, I think he he wants to sound like he knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably why it is. What does he say uh, at all? What is it? He goes, um, yeah, oh, he's is like, that not very nice at all? It's like, I think that is, <laughs> I think that's, it doesn't he say the word seems as well? It's like, this seems to have sausages yes, it- and cheeses on it. I think that's him being like, um, I understand that the combination of food can create a delicious uh, taste, but um, there's a good chance that uh, combined incorrectly, this could be quite bad for both of us kind of thing. I think he's just sort of lost in the moment and just wants to say something that sounds like someone in a movie might say. Um, But then, you know, Katia kind of actually making no sense whatsoever sounds cool to him. Yeah, uh, which and you know that's the per- that's sort of what that's doing. It's like the first moment where staff might be able to look at her and and see her as someone like other than just like his sister's friend who's like constantly on his tail. Oh, because she like knows she at- she has all these specifications what pizza she wants, and then she orders chips, which is not even on the menu. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like, oh wow, she's a real like a free thinker. Yeah, I think he's like, he likes that, you know, he's very aware that this is quite new and and like uncharted territory for him. But he's like, wow, this girl's eaten food before. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, kind of thing. We'll be right back with more Jamie Demetrio. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And we're back with Jamie Demetrio. So I, I, I've heard you talk about a lot of the development stages between the the short and the series was thinking about the other characters and thinking about how they related to Stath and um, how each character also brought out a different things about him. So I want to talk about the other characters a little bit, um, starting with Sophie, who's played by your sister, Natasha, who sure. was also in the short, but evolves quite a bit. Um, can you talk yeah. about sort of her both as a singular being and as a character that relates to Stath? 
Yeah, I mean, as anyone who knows her or seen her do stuff, she's unbelievable performer, always has been. I mean, we, you know, forever have been doing sort of charactery dumb stuff around the house, uh, you know, doing impressions of our mum and dad particularly. Um, but I think with Sophie, um, I was very aware that, um, you know, a lot, a lot of characters that Tash does in her own right, live and otherwise, are kind of loose nerve endings, very kind of uh, roof blown off kind of mad characters um, who are, yeah, just like quite surreal. And, uh, and I kind of didn't want to step on any of their toes kind of thing for any development that she might have. Mm. Um, and I was like, you know, and I know a kind of much sort of quieter, sweeter side of her, obviously. And I know that she's an incredibly gifted, subtle, naturalistic actor. And I was like really keen to kind of expose that side of her because I don't think a lot of people can do what, what she does in the show. Like, you know, be so small and quiet, but I, I find her so funny in the show and yeah. actually acts as like a, she acts as a good kind of counterbalance to staff because she's so sweet. Like knowing that she loves him, I think helps him out uh, as mm-hmm. far as an audience is concerned a lot. I also kind of, um, I don't know. I just kind of felt like it was a, another voice that I knew quite well that it felt um, you know, I, I think I knew the voice well enough to put in the show that kind of slightly repressed, um, lost person who's actually sort of fine in her own way also. Mm-hmm. You know, I think she feels okay. <laughs> the, she, um, as, you, as you mentioned, she is the sort of the only person that is thicker or dumber than maybe staff yeah, yeah, is. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about the stupidity of the show, the stupidness that exists in the show, to be clear, not the stupidness of the creation of the show. Um, <laughs> Either's fine. <laughs> yeah. In general, what do you like about stupidity in terms of depicting it and, and playing it? God, it's funny, isn't it? I don't, I don't like, I don't think I knowingly do love mm-hmm. that. Uh, I think that, strangely it just comes naturally i think it's just an extension of my sensibilities i think that that's the thing that i kind of know how to do i think that flaws allow an audience to get on Mm -hmm. side and it allows me to get on side with the character i kind of think that um you know the more accessible a flaw the more obvious a flaw that the the more lovable someone becomes um especially if they're kind of unaware of something or there's care mixed in with whatever that flaw is i think it just allows a character more wiggle room yeah. to kind of just be if if someone kind of knows too much i think you're more inclined to um I don't know, raise an, raise an eyebrow. Not that you're not about a character who says stuff that is so as stupid as staff. I mean, I think ultimately I'm sort of going around in circles when the answer really is it's literally just an extension of what I what comes out when I yeah. try and be funny, you know? Well, I, I think what is interesting, though, in, in your answer is there's a moment in, in the first series where um, a rival of your father... Um, points out that sort of like you can't fix someone like staff with, with staff's mm. problems, which is... I don't know if I've seen a show that has like characters that are sort of unbelievably dumb, like so dumb that if they were in the real world, they sort of they could not like have jobs. They couldn't sort of interact like and 
it is the first time I've ever seen a show where it's like this person has a legitimate deficiency. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I remember this correctly in my developmental psychology classes, but from what I remember, younger siblings tend to pick up certain things earlier in development than the first child, essentially because they learn how to sort of talk and walk from someone who's closer in age from from their older sibling. Do you right, feel right. like Natasha taught you how to be funny or what being funny is? Oh. Are there specific things you're like, this is so much that is so formative to me that came directly from that? Uh, right, right, yeah. Uh, oh, she would love me to say 100%, wouldn't she? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think there's a truth to that, definitely. It, it often felt like my favourite comedian was living in a house <laughs> growing up. It's like, there's a great gig going on down the hallway. <laughs> oh, man, like, you know, but she was like a teenager when I was, you know, uh, uh, when I was, you know, three years younger than her. So she yeah. she sort of, I wanted so much for her to just make me laugh all the time. My favourite game would be to take my... Um, class photo from school and get her to do impressions of how all the people in the photo sounded to her like mm -hmm. for just from looking at her and I think that things like that I, I developed like a real love of like just like working out in what ways everybody is stupid <laughs> I guess and she's also really good at taking the piss out of herself and like calling herself out but like that that's like the that's the biggest competition with us like who can call themselves out for mm -hmm. doing the dumbest kind of thing who can be the most confident in their own stupidity kind of thing and i think that that's i mean inevitably yeah let, it must be it must be led yeah. by her i mean the other thing that you you've talked about is part of your sense of humor was you guys as the sort of like sounding boards for each other to sort of respond to uh, she called them your eccentric parents or sort of not your not typical life growing up. Can you talk a little bit about what that liked and how that sort of influenced what your comedy became? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I, I uh, yeah, I mean, you talking about um, the kind of these characters not being able to kind of cope in the real world. Um, mm. I, I think that my dad kind of laid the foundation for me believing that they could. <laughs> um, you know, the material that came out of him growing up, 99.9% .9 of it is stuff that would get cut in kind mm. of note stages uh, because, like, they wanted the show to feel like it could exist in this universe. <laughs> and I'd be yeah. like, no, that was... It's, it was always, always, always the true stories that got cut quickest because they just felt, like, unfathomable. I remember him growing up being like uh uh call being on the phone to his bank and going excuse me uh uh i try to every time i put my card in the machine to get the cash out it never it doesn't come out and they'd be like did you press your pin code uh, what's your pin and he'd be like yeah i press the numbers yeah 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 and they're like but what okay do you know what your pin code is and he went yes yeah, the numbers and they're like but which numbers and he went well whichever ones i press <laughs> And he thought that it was just like, put the card in, have a bit of fun with the numbers and the, <laughs> and the cash will come out kind of thing. And, you know, things like that would happen constantly. The amount of times I would see something insane happening in the street and then I'd get closer to it and it would uh, it would turn out to be my dad. It, like a guy walking down the street holding a tree. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, oh my God, there's a guy over there holding a tree. 
oh my God, he is the reason I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> like, and he would have stolen a tree from someone's garden because he thought they had olives on it and then they didn't <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so I, I think stuff like that, I mean, coping mechanism is is probably true. Ultimately, we lived in a very loving household. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't devastating. It was just often quite surreal that the 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 ceiling on what was sort of possible was shattered most days <laughs> um and i think that you would be insane to just sit and observe and then carry on with your day yeah um or no in fact you know not even insane i think that i'm very lucky to have had someone there to catch their eye kind of thing because i think if i didn't i would have just seen it as normality and mm. and you know, observation, being able to to put words to an observation about something that happened or try to try to reenact something that happened. You know, I'm talking about people, I'm talking about people talking about their parents as if we were yeah. the first people to do yeah. it. Like everyone does it. Just like, but uh, it's it's like, yeah. So we had this crazy thing where as siblings, we would talk to each other yeah. inside our house. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it was, you know, as Tash said, so eloquently, I, I I will say what one thing that I was thinking about that you're you're similar to Stath is you sometimes call um the show a family sitcom even though like arguably it's a workplace sitcom but because it's a family business you, you you've called it a family <laughs> right. sitcom and right. you know it's, it's it's similar that you when given an opportunity opportunity to populate your work which is this show you've also sort of like made it a family business um, right is that is is family how family and work and sort of your your sense of self overlap does that feel like a way that you connect does that make sense to you i also think about how like staff really wants to have a kid in a way that you i feel like you don't really see many characters (laughs) um i i feel like it has (laughs) it the way that work and family cross over just i don't have any connection to that theme yeah um, it, I, I really don't. Uh, but I, uh, yeah, the, the, ch- the child thing, I do, I've, I've always said that I don't, I don't necessarily feel like stereotypically Greek, like growing up, I didn't, I didn't like relate so much to the Greek side of my family. I loved them, but like, I, I definitely felt different. I mean, my mum's English, so that's probably a big part of it. And, and we didn't really interact a huge amount with them as much as I'd like. But I, I've always felt like one of the big, the, sort of the two big pillars of Greekness in me is that I remember being broody really young, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and 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 seeing a kinship in that with other Greek guys my age that I found so funny. Like hearing a guy who is like simultaneously planning a kind of robbery in some instances and being like i'll tell you what when my daughter's born the way in which i'm gonna love her will transcend any love i felt in my life um i just found that you know and and i did find it i was like i really can't think of so many shows where that's been the case and it felt like such an easy goal to be like oh that's how to make him likable as well you know make him be really excited about that and 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 fill him with love um for that so to get back to the pizza scene, why does Sophie mm. order the pizza the way that she does? Which is, can I please eat the cheese and tomato one, a Tom Tom cheesy? 
it's so it's so nonsensical that I feel like insane trying to uh, yeah. trying to. But I suppose there are there there are reasons. Sorry, this just really reminded me of I I. I was thinking today about doing this podcast and I, I assumed like stupidity and stuff would come up. Yeah. And I and I was like, oh, I know how I'm going to be. I'm going to be so earnest and <laughs> and really try and dig deep when ultimately a lot of the time the answer probably is, I just thought it was really funny. Yeah. Um, uh, and I remembered I did this and I was thinking about it and I remember doing I did a sketch with Mr. Bean like 10 years ago as like a, a as an essay. And I remember him doing this like really dumb thing where like it's a funeral and he's like like crawling on the floor because he's left his sweets in the coffin, his candy in the, in the coffin. And I remember him breaking uh stopping to, because he wanted to sort of do something physically different yeah. and and taking he was like and then taking this opportunity to be like. I just want to thank everybody ever so much for being here. I just can't tell you how much today has meant to me. Um, this is a very important scene in the oeuvre of uh, being. Um, and uh, yes, I just want to uh, reposition my thigh as I crawl towards the coffin. Thank you ever so much. Um, anyway, that just ran to mind um, when discussing why Sophie says yeah. I will have the, <laughs> che- the Tom Tom Cheesy. I think she says what she says because... Uh, she wants the simplest pizza and uh, she's um, nervous that she might, it's more about the way she says it and she's nervous that she might get saying a food name wrong. Mm-hmm. I think she she feels like she probably doesn't deserve to be there. Oh. And uh, I think that she's like, but simultaneously thrilled by that fact. It's like, oh my God, I'm like... I'm doing a thing that someone might do in an American TV show. Like I'm like here on a date with my brother and my friend and I'm sort of setting them up and, you know, uh, Al's here. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, I think she's just, uh, I think it's, again, it's so much more about how she says it. She's like, she's crawling with excitement that she gets to like, just the action of holding a menu and then saying something from it to a waiter, I think is like one of the best moments of her year. (laughs) Um, You mentioned Al, who's played by Al Roberts, who's who's a longtime friend and collaborator. Can you talk about similarly this sort of creation and evolution and sort of how he relates to both staff and Sophie? Uh, yeah, so Al um, was uh, in the Cambridge Footlights when I was uh, going up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, just like the big annual comedy festival here. Uh, when we so we were at university at the same time, I went to a different university. But Footlights is like the most prestigious mm. uh, sort of comedy university group in the UK, and uh, yeah, debatably, but I, I, I'd say so. Uh, but but I'll take he, your word uh, for it. Yeah, sure. He. I saw him in this show and I just, he blew my mind. I just thought he was the funniest thing I'd ever seen and uh, and continued to. He's in a sketch troupe called Sheeps with a guy called Liam Williams, a guy called Darren Johnson, who actually uh, was the first script editor on the show about seven years ago. And I just couldn't get enough of him and I like and he's kind of uh, elusive it's quite I, I didn't I didn't we didn't socialize so much and I think initially it was just like I so badly want to hang out with that guy 
if I write him into my show, there's a chance I might be able to kind of thing. And just like being able to, you know, I just wanted to bolster the show with some definites. And I was like, Al will definitely be funny if he's in it. It will just bring so much to it. I'm like, I'd be so lucky to have him. And uh, again, similar to Sophie, I was very aware that the kind of characters that Al likes to play are often uh, authoritative um, and and people around him are kind of obeisant. Or, or, you know, they. in fact, the, the joke of his characters that he does live a lot of the time is that they are kind of obnoxious and up themselves. Mm. And uh, he doesn't realise that no one gives... And he doesn't realise that no one gives a shit about what he's saying. That's kind of the, the, the shtick. A lot of the time. I mean, he's a brilliant character actor who plays a million things. But I sort of needed a... I think I needed a kind of Jeff in the show. I mean, Sophie gives Staff so much love, but it's kind of, you know, she's his sister. So uh, Jeff is in Jeff from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Got it. Uh, it's a Larry kind of <laughs> Yeah, I needed a Jeff. Um, it's not, it's not. Um, but uh, I, uh, and yeah, me, I wanted him to get the part so badly, but you know, the channel understandably wanted to get some names in it. So they, they made everyone audition and me and Al did like a four-hour session, mm-hmm. uh, just like trying to crack the character. And we worked out that the only way it was going to work is if he, he at no point disagreed with anything Stad said. Um, and, you know, his kind of politeness outweighed everything. And there, there is kind of a, a, you know, there's a pattern to how the how jokes come out of their dialogue. And more often than not with Al, it's like, it's like, uh, Stath will say something stupid. Al will approve of the stupid thing that Stath said. Um, and then uh, Stath will pay Al like a compliment that's way too big for the <laughs> advice that Al's given him. And Al will try and deflect the compliment and then sort of be then attempt to accept it. <laughs> uh, you mentioned compliments. And, and this scene pretty early on has one where, where Chem says to Stath, you know, you should order as you're the best one here. Um, <laughs> the show is filled with people giving each other compliments. Uh, what do you find so funny about giving and receiving compliments? Uh, <laughs> I do. I do find it very funny. I think it's like dumb people being earnest and being lovely. There's just something so simultaneously nice and funny about it. Like, I, I just think it's the it's the kind of remedy for irony. Mm. Um like just someone letting their guard down to just sort of like fill the room with love is <laughs> really funny to me. Uh, how how are you at receiving compliments as a as a person who's having some success? How are compliments a thing that are natural for you? Uh, I think I I think I'm okay with it. I think I just sort of. I will either kind of just switch my brain off and say, thank you so much. That's so nice of you. Uh, Or I'll interrogate the compliment to try and find what these negative subtext is. Um, Or, you know, natural kind of deflection. I don't know. I I think it's just, it's kind of a, it's a strange moment, isn't it? To, To just be told something nice. I think it's almost, it's sort of unfair. It's like, not on me. It's sort of unfair that I should sort of receive that so frequently. It's like, uh, that's too nice. I will say, I, I agree with you, but I've, I've, I've learned that that is not how a lot of people see compliments. A lot of people just like getting them. <laughs> right, 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 right. Maybe. Like, they're just like normal. They're not normal like they get them all the time, but they like, oh, sometimes if you do something, 
you get complimented and that's a good part of life where I think there are certain people who they are a peculiar thing of life that you're like, what's, 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 let's reckon with it with the TV show that has people constantly have uh, compliments <laughs> being given. Right. Yeah. That makes sense to me. <laughs> um, to talking about uh, Sophie and Al, my, my colleague, Catherine Van Arendonk, compared to the show to The Office in a piece on Vulture recently. And in many ways, so, at least to me, totally and comedically, it, it reminds me more of The American Office, just because it's like a little bit sweeter. Considering sure. how sh- huge that show was growing up, there's no way for it to sort of not have shaped like what you thought a sitcom could and should be like. But how, right, much was, yeah. how, how much was it an organic influence and how much it was you intentionally iterating on well, this is sort of like the sort of sitcom in people's brains. I don't want to subvert it or try to do things that are playing against it. Um, I think I think entirely organic. I don't think there's any point in which I, you know, I sit down and, and say, how can I how can I do what The Office did? I, I just want the show to be as funny as it can be. And I think, you know, you... I think ultimately the, the, the thing that was so original about the office probably wasn't this kind of uh the structure of like 2.1 characters in the center and then like uh you know a, a sort of overseer and then there, there are so many parallels that are drawn um that i can draw myself so easily but i don't think any of them were intentional actually no uh, I, I think that it even took me a while to realize that I'd accidentally made a show in an office yeah. because in my head, it was like, in my head, I was like, it's a lettings agency. He's in a car or yeah. like he's in apartments. And then it was like, oh, we should probably house this somewhere. Well, let's give them like a base and uh, most of the show will take place out and about. And then eventually you're like, oh, they're spending a lot of time in an office. Like that show, The Office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's like, oh, and there's a, a, a sort of heterosexual love story <laughs> at the front of it. And a buffoon that's kind of like overseeing everything. Oh, and like like a couple of people that you need to make uh, the, the, the buffoon like not seem too reprehensible, blah, blah, blah. And then someone who rolls their eyes kind of thing I mean I think you know it, it just it just happens and and I think it happens because I think the office just did everything right and yeah. you kind of go well what's what feels right now and naturally you're like you're you're you're, you're just led to these kind of pillars that that seem to that seem to work I mean funnily enough I, I think that at the very very beginning a big decision we had to make just on sort of office comparisons a big decision we had to make was whether to not whether or not to make it mockumentary mm. because it was around the time that it was like booming and the production company that make it make a show called people just do nothing which is a really successful mockumentary here that's, that's good and and um yeah you know it was like a big question about like should we utilize that um this mode that allows you to deliver exposition in a talking head so that you can just focus on the funnies and in, in the scenes. And the decision came down to two things. I think one was, I want the characters to be alone from time to time. Like I want the comedy to not come out of bravado. And I think I want there to be a joke that, you know, I want there to occasionally be bravado that is, that's drawn out by things other than there being a camera there. Like I want their characters to be like literally by themselves in a room sometimes and, and see what that's, you know, what that brings out. But also I just wanted to challenge myself to work out how to write 
exposition into dialogue and scenes mm. between people and not that not that you don't do that in an in a in a in a mockumentary but I know myself and I reckon I would have probably lent too heavily on that as as a device and ended up not really coming out the other side of it with the with you know I I I think that I I think that I probably didn't make it a mockumentary because I wanted so much to make it a mockumentary <laughs> like for the wrong reasons kind of thing. Yeah. It's like oh that'd be easier and I don't want it to be easier. Yeah, I think ultimately yeah. Um so back back to the pizza scene why does Al order the way he does? Uh because he wants to um impress Sophie or kind of he wants to show her that he's like like her and that they get on really well and that they might you know it, it's more structural his answer in this instance because he wants to share a pizza with her kind of thing a bit he obviously hasn't thought it through because he, he doesn't understand that ordering the same thing as something someone is the only reason why you wouldn't want to share with them yeah um so the other main character in the scene um is Katya, who's played by Ellie White, who you also have known, who also works quite a bit with your sister. They're, they're double mm-hmm. act partners. So it's the same question. But I also, um, I, I think in an interview in the past, you described Stath as sort of asexual and, and innocent. Mm. How Katya does not have the energy. She calls him sexy. They, you know, they have, she seems to have a more grown up understanding of what the relationship should be. How, so mm. talk to me both about sort of creating Katya and what does it mean to introduce a person like Katya to a character like Steph? Okay. Uh, so, I mean, again, like Al, it was like, how do we just raise the bar on how funny this is? And Ellie is like one of the funniest people in the world to me. And, you know, we, we, we all have kind of a shorthand and having that in a show is just invaluable. Like someone that you can just throw to like that and, and give new stuff and just, they know exactly what you mean when you're saying it. As far as Katia as a character is concerned, um, again, I think that Stath is such a piece of shit in so many ways that it's useful to have as many like people liking him as possible um, because it's, you know, Stath has the, well, like, or, or not thinking he's an idiot as possible because he has all the viewers, all these other people, the entire audience watching the show thinking this guy's stupid. So it was like, what if someone finds him sexy? Well, and And also like what kind of person would find him sexy and you go, well, someone who probably has no taste and sort of like sees a kind of like a uh, football player in a fairground mirror. Like that's sort of, I think, how she sees him. It's like he has an earring and he has a suit and he has leather shoes and uh, like says stuff from films and she doesn't see through any of that. I think she just takes it all at face value. And I think that it says something about Stath, the the one person who's giving him that kind of stuff, he rejects. And I think it's probably because he sees a bit of himself in her that he doesn't, uh, that he doesn't know about himself kind of thing. He's like, no, she's like tacky kind of thing. Uh, Like, as in like, there's some, in fact, I think the main thing with him is that he sees her as like very foreign Mm. while he doesn't realize that he's probably more foreign than she is kind of thing and i think that he probably you know there's a there's a there's a duality with staff which is that he 
probably wishes he was an English gentleman um, deep down, but is simultaneously really proud of being Greek. But I don't think he knows what either of them means. I think growing up, I struggled a lot with kind of that knowing, like I could see that like there was loads of funny Euro stuff. Like I'd go to Cyprus and you'd watch a sitcom and it would just be like a guy like falling over a thousand times <laughs> in half an hour. Or like I remember seeing a prank show over there that was just like uh, canned laughter without pause, just mm-hmm. canned laughter from beginning to end. <laughs> um, and a guy walking down the street, this was the prank. There's a guy walking down the street holding three big boxes, struggling to carry them. And like, was like playing over the top. And they're catching, you got the laughter going and they're catching people's eyes as they pass him, but they're not, they're nonplussed by it. They don't care. (laughs) They don't care that he's doing it. It was just like so lacking in quality. I remember watching a sitcom where instead of windows in the studio, they had like glossy posters of windows. Um, So I was very aware of all that stuff and found it really funny. But then I sort of struggled with this idea of like, but how am I connected to that if I find it so funny? And I think as I've grown up, I've just, I only love it. I think it's like so... I love that it's so throwaway and I love that it's like, it's like, oh, fucking give a shit about this TV program. I want to go and have some like delicious dinner and talk to my family kind of thing. Um, uh, and and I, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the sort of certain physical humor that you watch and there, though we can't, it's not in the scene and it's hard to really depict on audio. I do want to at least talk a little bit about physical comedy for people who have watched the show out and will type of thing that you do i think three or four times which is like a series of a physical comedy act where there's the soccer ball the when you score a goal on your own net thing spoiler alert the energy (laughs) drink the keys i think the keys is my favorite one so (laughs) how do you approach sort of physical comedy how do you sort of conceive the ones that are sort of these like edited runs um well uh, i suppose I think it's just about, I think you're just led by like what what would make me gutturally laugh. Yeah. Not laugh because it's like, oh, a man's falling over, full stop. It's like, what's the kind of, what's the friction in the, uh, in the slapstick? Like what's mm-hmm. happening in the story that makes it funny? And it's like in the instance of him throwing the keys, I, I suppose the joke is less about the physical comedy, but more that it's his version of what he saw in the... Uh, in the earlier in the episode, you see uh, his boss is like really slick, kind of sexy advert for the letting agency. And it's he's trying to do his own version of that. And it's like, it's like, why is your version of that so violent? <laughs> you know, I think I think that was the question that made me laugh. Like in his head, he's like, right. So I suppose he's sort of dancing with that girl and getting in the shower and like he's chucking keys to a mate and his mate's catching them. I suppose it's the same thing as me throwing keys at Al's head and like, and like holding on to like, a, like holding on to a chandelier and stuff like that. I think that the joke has to be more than just like someone falls over. It has to be built in. I mean, that's yeah. so obvious, but yeah. yeah. Um, the other physical thing I want to ask you about is the clothes. They, they're incredibly specific. I mean, especially Stats clothes and Sophie's clothes. How, talk about your approach to them because they they feel so deliberate and it's hard to sort of as an outsider to put your finger on it. What how did you how do you think of them and why do they make such sense? They're like they fill out those characters so much more. Um. Oh, thanks. Um. 
By the way, any any question you're asking me that has a compliment in it, thank you very much. No <laughs> um, um, uh, uh, with well, with with Sophie, I sort of it's a combination of like a deep comfort mixed with a lack of asp- aspiration. Mm. I suppose she's like she she doesn't want to get dressed up or anything like that because she doesn't think that anyone would care probably she's never thought that anyone would care kind of thing which is kind of a comfort thing but it but it's and and the clothes are literally comfortable I wanted her to be like yeah of course I'm gonna wear the thing that's comfiest otherwise I'll be uncomfortable um uh and but there's an element of like hiding there as well um I've always thought that um you know those were given to her by someone significant a long time ago and and she's just never thought to mix it up because that's not how her mind works. It's all quite linear for her. It's just like, I want to be a musician and I'm going to do it probably. And I don't probably know, don't need to do anything in the meantime to get me there. <laughs> like I'll just stay the same and then I'll be a musician kind of thing. Um, with staff and the other characters, it was really, it's, it's sort of like, what does he What's the kind of like shit version? What's the version that he can afford of what he thinks is cool kind of thing? Like what, like, I think, again, it's like the, it's always the bare minimum and this assumption that like, well, it's what I want. So it's what will be. It's like, well, I want this suit to be the coolest suit in London. So it probably is. Like he it's like, I don't need yeah. to do It's like very much that I think I get that from my dad. Like he, if I was to like ask for a birthday cake from him, he'd be like, all right, I'll get you. Uh, and I'll be like Cho- chocolate. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah. Birthday cake, chocolate birthday cake. And it would come and it wouldn't be chocolate. It would just be brown. And I'd be like, this isn't, a ch- I wouldn't, I'd be like, oh, this is actually isn't chocolate. He'd be like, it is. And he's a chef. Yeah. And he'd taste it and be like, yeah, that's chocolate. Because why wouldn't it be? It'd be really inconvenient if it wasn't, because that would mean that I was wrong. Yeah. And I think that Stats clothes are born out of that. And then, you know, all the other characters, it is just like, it's a big, a big part of it is just like, what can these people afford? And ultimately, very few of them, I think Carol's probably the only person in the office who dreamed of being a letting agent. And, and, and her clothes do seem more kind of chosen, I think. I think she wants to look nice, whereas everyone else is just like, I need a suit to be a letting agent, so I will buy the first suit that I see in a shop. <laughs> so, I, you know, as we talked about a little bit, you feel like the name Seth Let's Flats probably was not the best decision in so mm. much as if you ever wanted to make sense for Americans, um, it, would, it wouldn't. I mean, like I know when I saw the title, none of the words immediately oh. made clear what the show was, but I, I yeah. did watch it um, and I persevered <laughs> and... Um, Thank it's, you. So, but so it's clear that the states, as an idea, has been on your radar um, for some time. And you know, of course, in recent years, your sister's has gotten a good deal of acclaim for her role mm. in what we do in the shadows. A- mm. As it relates to being a comedian, how do you feel about America, and what in- informs that feeling? I think I do look to America as far as quality is concerned. I think that a lot of the time, and you know, so many Americans I talk to. Uh, have said the same thing. I don't know, just out of politeness. But I think that there's like, I think that that's just the result of like, you probably won't see our worst stuff because it won't reach there kind of thing. Uh, and vice versa kind of, you know. Um, 
so yeah I, I I kind of it seems like a magical other place to me you know I, I look at like my you know I love Kate Blant and John Early and, and that gang and and I think they're incredible and that to me seems like a you know a, a super high bar to be reached and any kind of uh you know I don't know it just sort of having the show be like even on over there and like part of any kind of conversation no matter how small it's yeah I'm really it's really really nice it's really it's that sort of that's it I just I'm I'm yeah. just like it, it feels great I'm I'm really thrilled especially with the fucking t- title I mean we were gonna call it staff just staff and it felt like dead it just felt like nothing yeah and we we spoke about it for a while and we we suggested staff let's flat to the beginning and it got vetoed so hard and then it came around to releasing it and the channel were like "Ah, I don't know about staff and then we talked about calling it agent staff and then we were like this isn't solving the staff problem and somehow like it became staff let's flat and i do i stand by it 25 percent because i do find it funny how obtuse it is and i find it funny that the name of the show is staff's answer to the the question what do you do for a living (laughs) stuff let's flats i let flats um uh, and i think that yeah if I had my time again, sure, I'd change it. I don't know what to. I still, I think about it all the time. I don't know what. Do you have any suggestions? Because I'm uh, happy to. I'm happy to to put it in the mix. You just you could do stent. I mean, I'm trying to think if you changed if you Americanized the words just for the title, but then still had them say letting agencies and then like if it was staff rents flats, let's say, but you don't really use rents in that way. I think yeah. that's part of the hard thing is. It does seem like how renting and letting works is a little bit different. Like, right, right, right. Because it's a letting, like, we have brokers who are just there for the sort of like getting people apartments and then they're done, right? And oh, they don't sure. work. Yeah. They don't work for the apartment where it seems like you guys are both letting and managing. Yeah, property management. Most, most sort of crummy lettings agencies in the UK will say, uh, yeah, lot of lettings and property management. So yeah, that's how that works. So again, yeah. So the culture is like the culture's so different in so many ways. I ultimately there is probably a title out there, but <laughs> we we fucked it and it's done. And I just sort of have to accept it. And that I think I really, really had given up on the idea of it just had never occurred to me that it might work over yeah. there and and also you know it's such a local show like the voice is so specific to our part of town so like even being asked on a show like this is like it you know it's so lovely that uh, anyone's kind of into it over there I, yeah yeah i mean i i don't watch a lot of british things partly because i decided it's too much to have to learn about and i'm like if i if i have to watch one right. thing i have to watch like a hundred of it and sure. then this people really recommending and I I I'm of a belief that like things are local and it's good and it's good because it's specific. But there's some I I mean it, it works. It reminded me. Have you ever watched the show Detroiters? Did that make it out there? I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, I uh, I love those guys. They're amazing. That was like the closest because they're sort of like it's. I was like this is a. I was like this is a small business that I imagine is the equivalent of like the people that do local commercials, but it's ultimately a show about like sweet people that work together and they're like just like the excuse to be able to be nice to each other 
Yeah, yeah. There's definitely that kinship. In fact, actually, the guy who, uh, Andrew Gaynord, who directed the original Blatt's Shaw, actually directed um, a couple of episodes of uh, Detroiters and, and, uh, and uh, Tim's Netflix special. Oh, wow. So, so there is a, there's a kind okay. of, there's a link there. But I, I yeah, I, God, those guys are so funny. And yeah, there's definitely a, there's definitely a, um, yeah, there's a similarity there. Never thought of that. Yeah, Detroit is so funny. Assuming we'll be in a time where you can fly more readily again in the future, <laughs> is is a career in America a thing you, as you've now have an amount of success as the show plays here, as I imagine, you know, you take more meetings with more LA types. Is it a thing that you aspire to? And what would that aspire, like what would, what is behind that aspiration? Um. Sure. Yeah, I think it's something I aspire to. There's a couple of things uh, on on the horizon, I think. I mean, ultimately, I I mean, strangely, I I don't think that I think that staff will always be kind of second tier as far as meetings and stuff are concerned to Fleabag, like, you know, which is fine by me, like, every, every meeting I've gone into for the past few years in the States, it's like, it's just been such an amazing gift for me, because you know, having a point of reference is everything. And the point of reference to be that, you know, amazing thing that Phoebe created is it's like a real stroke of luck for me, you know, because those kind of like two episode parts, they very rarely do a huge amount for you. So, so ultimately, yeah, that, that, that's part of that, that was the kind of kickoff for uh, American work. And I've done a couple of things in the States, but I think the, the, the reason behind the one is just, it's just growth and expansion. Mm -hmm. I suppose you want to work with different people, do different things, kind of like, uh, just again, it's the same as choosing the possibly less easy for me option with staff. It's like, it really scares me the prospect yeah. of going out there and trying to work out a kind of more universal sensibility or not, you know, maybe sticking to my guns and working out how I can make that work on the ground over there. And I, I just think it feels like a challenge. I think most Brits would agree. It's kind of like that. It's like, why not? Let's yeah. just sort of let's let's expand, I guess. So uh, that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because this is uh, comedy, it's a, a laughing round. Um, Great. Uh, do you have a favorite joke joke? Oh, do I? Uh, uh, um, a friend of mine, Liam Williams, used to open his set with the joke, um, uh, the universe implodes, no matter, which I thought was uh, was nice. <laughs> that's the that's the one that springs off the top of my head. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a more. I feel like American street jokes have like big ramp ups for nothing, and I think British ones are sort of more coy. So I like that one. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's more representative of that. There's definitely there's definitely sort of bigger ramp up ones that I have, but weirdly not to hand. As I mentioned. I don't tend to have many British guests on, um, mm. but people always say I should. So in your opinion, who are uh, at, at max three British comedians that I should uh, interview? Okay, whoa. Um, 
Whoa. Okay. Um, oh, I'm just, I'm sort of going through my head, like who, who, uh, who, uh, uh, cause all right. Okay. Let's just take everyone in staff as a given. Like that is yes, my yes. gang. Like I love those. Um, okay. So, uh, Daisy May Cooper and Charlie Cooper are, uh, hysterical. They make a show called this country on BBC three that I love. Um, uh, uh, Christ, that's two. And then let's just knock it out the park with the last one. Um, who's the funniest? Oh, Tim Key. Uh, yeah, great. He's a yeah. He's he's a, a a comedian and poet who is, I think, by all accounts, one of the funniest people in the universe. So yeah. Um, is there a? I I often ask if there's a joke you wish you could steal, or a character, or is there a sketch? Is there any sort of comedic unit that you've seen another person do that you saw and you wish? Oh, I you think? Oh, I wish I thought of that, or wish I could do that, or something something to that effect um yeah uh let me think lately i uh there's th- this show this country there's an amazing episode where uh they just sit on a train platform uh and the whole episode just takes place with them sat on this bench just talking to each other and i would love to work out how to like make like the deepest bottle episode imaginable i love mm. the idea of really knowing how to have faith in like the tiny kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think that that that's again, the one that springs to mind. It, it seems that you are very into at least singing R and B ballads. Um, yeah. Do you have a, <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, yeah, obviously. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite one to sing? What is your favorite one? Uh, anything the, what is the R and B ballad that comes to mind when I brought up this question? Uh, Four Seasons of Loneliness by Boys to Men is stunning. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this will be the last one. Do you have a a joke or a bit or a character that you did an amount of times and the audience never liked it and you kept on trying and they kept on not liking it and maybe you've given it up, but you'll go to your grave being like, that character was so funny and the audience was wrong the entire time? Um, <laughs> let me think. <laughs> Uh, I definitely, I did a character who had varying success called Michael Eggwater, <laughs> who was a guy who was trying to get his, uh, daughter back. Uh, his estranged daughter had come to see him, uh, do a show and I would like annihilate, I would annihilate myself on stage every night. Cause the joke was, he's just keeps really badly hurting himself while he's trying to impress this estranged daughter to the point that I had to go to hospital because I'd like fractured my heel. Um, and, uh, and it just, the, 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 guy, the, the fact that it wasn't getting laughs and I was getting so hurt, just, it, it made me feel more and more like I needed to continue doing it because it was like I was like I need at some point or another to get something out of this pain and you know it kind of started to go well occasionally but I definitely had some of my worst ever gigs doing that I remember doing a show as him it was in a huge venue it was like a competitive stand-up comedy Mm -hmm. night the Leicester Square Comedy Awards and I did like a five-minute set and it got so my girlfriend was there to support me at the time and she was sat on a balcony, like on the top right. And I remember any time she laughed in support, the sound of everyone's <laughs> necks in the audience craning to her to see what she might have been finding funny was louder than her laugh. Just this like, Voof! 
like and it was like they were like she must be watching something mm-hmm. funny on her phone or something because there's clearly no comedy yeah. going on in the room right now it's like she was interrupting their silence <laughs> yeah exactly it's like excuse me <laughs> yeah so that springs to mind yeah that is uh perfect that's it that's the end of the interview oh um, cool thank you so much this was fantastic oh yeah thanks man i'm i'm never quite sure on podcasts so I think uh, you're thanks quite very much good at it i feel like i've said, oh. heard you say that and you are uh other than you think you did didn't do well you do quite a good job explaining all this stuff oh that's very nice i think it's more just about i don't uh, i don't like I, I find it quite difficult being myself i think it's like <laughs> if people don't like a character i can easily sort of rationalize that but if someone doesn't like me i'm like ah. um so yeah interesting that's it for another episode of good one you can watch Stath Let's Flats on HBO Max. Follow Jamie on Twitter, at Jamie Tonight, and on Instagram, at Jamie Demetriou. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Gotham Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. <laughs> Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with a new comedian and a new joke. Have a good one. Every time someone says have a good one to me, I'm like, they must be a fan. But it happens literally all the time. And every time I'm like, do they know? Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.